This past Tuesday afternoon, I went to the SM Annex Mall uh, to fix my computer's power cord uh, at the CyberZone. Cindy happened to be with me to run a quick errand while I was there. And while we were driving to the mall, she needed some money, so she asked me to give her my wallet, uh, which I did as she took out some money. Then as we approached the mall, she asked me to drop her off at the mall entrance while I parked the car uh, so that we can save some time, uh, which I also did. As I dropped her off and uh, drove my car into the parking garage, uh, I remembered suddenly that it was a prepay parking, especially if you have been to the Annex parking garage, you know you pay first before you enter into the garage. As I approached uh, the little booth where I would turn over my payment, I reached for my wallet and I realized that it was missing. No problem, I knew that Cindy had it, but how would I now pay for the 50 pesos uh, to get into the mall parking? I quickly began to scavenge around the uh, various nooks and crannies of our car, and surprisingly, I was able to collect enough change that were in my car that amounted to about 45 pesos. I was still a little bit short, and so I drove up and I explained to the parking attendant uh, my situation, and uh, she was kind enough uh, to let me through. I knew that she would have to make up the difference. Anyway, when I parked the car at the fifth floor, uh, right at the cyber zone level, I called Cindy a few times until she picked up, and I told her, you need to give me back my wallet because I need to pay for my computer's power cord. To which she replied over the phone, no, I don't have your wallet. I gave it back to you. I said, no, you didn't. And that is at that moment that we both had a sinking feeling. I told her quickly, please look into your purse. Perhaps you have put my wallet in your purse. As I scrambled uh, to look at the car floor, but both of us came up empty. You can probably guess what happened at this moment. She had my wallet on her lap, forgetting to return it to me. And when she got out of the car at the mall entrance, she had dropped my wallet on the ground. She was frantic and I was frantic. I said, quickly go to the entrance and ask the guard if anyone turned in any wallets. And as I was on the fifth floor parking lot, I quickly got out of the car to begin running downstairs to help in the search but in my heart, I knew it was gone. When you drop a wallet at the mall entrance, it's not going to be there. I also knew it wouldn't be there because I had just gone to the ATM a little bit earlier and had gotten more cash than usual in my wallet to pay some bills. Furthermore, I knew it would be a hassle to try to cancel everything and then to reapply because my U.S. license and my U.S. credit cards were still inside. I just simply didn't have time to transfer out my wallet since coming back from the U.S. And so you can see that I was indeed frantic. There was only one mission in my heart, one sole focus, one sole purpose, and that was to make it down to the first floor to help in the search of my wallet. When I was running down, I didn't care who was, who was there. I didn't care uh, if I was pushing away people at the escalator. And I, I'm sorry if some of you were there and I didn't say hi to you. Uh, I wasn't very much focused on who was around me. I didn't care if I wasn't very nice to the people who were trying to sell me things. 
In fact, I got a bit angry as I was running down at the architects who designed these escalators that did not connect. And if you've been to the annex, you know that when you go down the escalator, you've got to go like a, a half oval to get to the other escalator going down. Who in the world designs something like that? Uh, while I'm running down, my phone rings. It's, it's ringing, and I see that it's Pastor Alberto calling me. And of all the times to call me about a church matter, and so I, I kept turning off the phone. As I'm running down, I get a text from my wife. And Cindy tells me that the guard can't find anything and no one has turned in any wallet. My heart sank with anger. Finally, with Pastor Alberto persistently calling, I, I finally answered the phone and rudely said to him, Hello, what do you need? To which he said, Someone has found your wallet and has called the church. And I've been trying to call you to tell you. He's calling the church because he saw your calling card there. And you have to look for so-and-so, a person. He's an employee at one of the restaurants on the ground floor. By that time, I had made it to the first floor of the mall and, and ran uh, to the restaurant. And sure enough, there was a man who had my wallet, and he returned it to me. Perhaps I was a bit rude, but instinctively, I checked to see if the money was still there. I thanked him profusely for his honesty and his integrity. And he told me that um, he happened to see it as he came into the mall to begin the work day. And he picked it up and called the number uh, on the card. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that there are still honest people in the Philippines. In that moment, when I was running downstairs to search for my wallet... If you had said hi to me, I would have ignored you. I wouldn't have been very nice to you. Because my actions mimicked what was in my heart. And in the frantic state of my heart, my one action in life was to get down and search for my wallet. Someone has said, the mirror of a man's heart is his action. The mirror of a man or woman's heart is his or her action. How do you get a glimpse into the heart of men and women? You look at their actions. You see what they're doing. And this is especially true in the last moments of one's life. In the last moments of life, you want to be surrounded by family and friends. You call family and friends who are close to you to come at your bedside. Because in your heart, you want to be surrounded by men and women who love you and who you love. You don't want to be surrounded by enemies and strangers. Perhaps in the last moments of your life, you want to go on a trip. You want to go to a favorite place on earth. You want to hear your favorite songs. Just this one last time. Because your action mirrors your heart's desire to be at a very special place one last time. To hear a song one last time. As we continue our study in the life of Jesus, what are the actions of Jesus as he is being led to death by crucifixion? Many have asked, what is the heart of God? What is the heartbeat of God? What does he desire? The actions of Jesus, God himself, gives us an indication of the heart of Jesus, the heart of God. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 23, 
as we take a look at verses 26 to 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43, as we continue our sermon series entitled, Imperfect. Let's take a look this morning at what Jesus is doing as he is being led to Calvary and as he is being nailed to the cross. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. If you remember from last week, Jesus is condemned to die by Pilate. And Jesus is to be crucified. After enduring a long evening of legal trials, being beaten and spat upon and mocked, in his humanity, Jesus is tired. He is physically tired. And he can no longer carry the cross beams of the cross that each condemned person to crucifixion must bear. He couldn't make it the entire way. And so from the crowd, the Roman soldiers called forth Simon from the North African city of Cyrene to help Jesus carry the cross. Now, why does the gospel writer Luke include this detail? I believe Luke includes this detail to illustrate the physical weakened state of Jesus in his humanity. You see, when one person is often physically weak, when someone is sick, you're not thinking of other people. You're thinking about yourself. When you're weak, when you're tired, when you're sick, when you're in a hospital perhaps, you're thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about others. We don't have the time to think about the needs of others. And yet in the physically weakened state of Jesus in his humanity, look what he does. Verse 27 to 31. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will all begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry. Luke notes that a large crowd was following Jesus, and there were many women of Jerusalem who were mourning for him, who were crying because they knew that Jesus would die. And if you were in the place of Jesus... You would receive these consolation because you want everyone to know that there are people who are sympathetic to your cause. You have a following. But Jesus instead turns and warns them. He says, do not cry for me, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. You see, Jesus was warning them about the coming tribulation to a nation that had rejected him. And that's why the kingdom of God offered by Jesus had to be postponed he said they shouldn't be crying for him. They should be crying for themselves and what is to come. You see, Jesus was warning them about the impending judgment that would take place in the near future when General Titus would come in 70 AD and completely destroy Jerusalem. 
And Jesus was also warning them about a future destruction to a future generation when the Antichrist will come and he will destroy Jerusalem in the Great Tribulation because the people of Israel had rejected the Messiah. And so he told the women that the days of tribulation would be coming and it would be so terrible a time that mothers would wish they did not bring a child into the world because they would not want to see their children suffer. You see, the wrath of God through his using of the foreign invaders will have the people call upon the mountains and the hills to shield them and to hide them from the wrath of God, verse 30 tells us. The wrath of God would be so great upon a people that are deserving that they will ask the mountains and the hills to shield them from the wrath of God. And in verse 31, Jesus uses a proverbial saying. As Constable would note, the green tree stands for good conditions resulting from God's blessings and the dry tree for bad conditions resulting from divine judgment. So if God allowed innocent Jesus to perish in the times of his blessing, what would happen to guilty Jerusalem when God judged her? You see, Jesus was thinking about these people. His heart went out to them. He couldn't bear the thought that a rightful, wrathful God would pour upon his judgment on a people that had rejected his son. Even though Jesus was on the way to his death, number one, he was still thinking about others. He was thinking about their safety. He was thinking about their salvation. It was not only a warning, but a call for them to repent. And if they were to repent, perhaps God's punishment and God's judgment would be minimized. Now think about that. He was warning them so that they would repent, that God's wrath would be minimized. That's how much Jesus was thinking about their welfare. And yet, if you were in Jesus' place, I think you and I would want God's full punishment and wrath upon these people. And yet, the heart of Jesus, the heart of God, is that he is thinking about the welfare. He's thinking about others, not himself until the very end. He tells the mourners not to put their focus on him, but to focus upon themselves and their spiritual life because they are about to endure punishment. When you're suffering, when you're on a singular mission, do you stop to think about others? Do you stop to think about their welfare? Especially if you have been unfairly maligned or charged with a crime that you haven't committed, Would you be willing to think about others at that moment? I venture to say very few, almost none, would think about others in times like that. Most of us would be thinking about how unfair life is. Most of us would be very bitter, but not Jesus. He was thinking about others moments before his death. And Jesus looked down in the future generations of which we are a part. And that warning serves as a warning to us as well, too. He knows about the warning of a destruction of a life that does not know Him, that rejects Him. But He doesn't want us to focus on the fact that He is dying or has died. He wants us to focus on the actions we are to take in view of that, to repent so that God's wrath would be appeased, and it would be appeased through His Son. 
Jesus was thinking about others all the way until the end. What else is Jesus doing? Look at verse 32 to 33. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, intentionally put in the middle so that Jesus would be guilty by association, so that all those who saw Jesus on the cross would say, oh, he's but another common thief. Now, I don't want to go into the gruesome details of what actually crucifixion entails, because I believe most all of you know what is involved. But suffice to say, Jesus had nails driven into his hands and driven into his feet, crushing bones in the process. He had a crown of thorns on his head. And the weight of his entire body would come back down on those nail points as they hoisted up the cross to a standing position. And Jesus would have experienced excruciating pain. Crucifixion was one of the most horrible ways to die. A normal person suffering such excruciating pain would have cursed the people who were doing this to him. I certainly would. I would have proclaimed that I was innocent, undeserving of all of this. You see, in our moments of pain, in our moments of trials, in our moments of pressure, the heart finds it very difficult to deceive that's a very basic premise of a polygraph test, of a lie detector test. In a moment of pressure, will you tell the truth or not? In moments of pain, in moments of truth, in moments of pain, in moments of pressure, we, we speak the truth. How many of you have hit your hands with a hammer or burned yourself and let loose a few words that simply came out that expressed your heart's feeling. When you're angry, when you're jubilant, when you're excited, things just come out. The words that come out of our mouth reflect the heart condition. I don't know if you uh, came across this news this week. It's a funny story of the soccer player, Mohammed Anas, who got himself into real big trouble with his wife. You see, Anas had just been selected as the player of the game, he had an outstanding game. This was a very important soccer game. And he was selected player of the game. And so in the post-game interview, they interviewed him, and he was staking everyone. In his post-match interview, it started innocuously enough when he thanked God and he thanked the fans for supporting him. But things decidedly took an awkward turn when he suddenly blurted out, Thank you for this. Thank you for this award. I appreciate my fans, my wife and girlfriend. I, I mean, my wife. Sorry to say, he added quickly. And if you're interested in the video clip, it's, it's on YouTube, it's on Twitter. Viewers squirmed as Annas realized his blunder and started groveling to his wife on live TV. I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I love you so much from my heart. It's interesting, uh, the next day he dug himself a deeper hole. He should have listened to the sermon from last week. But the next day he tried to correct himself. He told the media, I'm not worried. 
Everyone in our family knows that I call my daughter my girlfriend. I think the world knows what is the truth. We speak forth the truth in times of pressure, in times of joy, in times of pain. The reason I mention that is that in the time of great pain and suffering, the words of Jesus that come out of his mouth are the true words that are not couched in niceties. It is reflective of his heart's cry. What does he say? Verse 34. Here are the words of Jesus. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In the moment of his suffering, when True words will have to be spoken. The heart of Jesus, the heart of God, is expressed in these beautiful words. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus Christ was asking the Heavenly Father to forgive those who had done these things to Him. And the basis for Him to ask this is because these people were ignorant. And they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus gave them the benefit of the doubt. He was looking through the lenses of their sinful spiritual nature. And he says they don't know what they're doing. And yet in great irony, they did know what they were doing. Because as Jesus was asking the heavenly father to forgive them, you know what they were doing? Look at verse 34 to 38. They divided his garments and cast lots And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. As Jesus was asking the Father to forgive them, they were stealing His clothes. They were dividing it up. They were mocking Him. They were taunting Him. They did, in fact, know what they were doing. And yet, what was Jesus doing? He wasn't condemning them. Number two, He was forgiving them. Jesus was forgiving them until the very end. He was forgiving people. From the actions of Jesus, you see the heart of God. And the heart of God, the heart of our Lord, is a deep desire to forgive us. Know that. Understand that. The heart of God, the heartbeat of God, is to forgive His people. That is a dangerous truth. And the reason it is dangerous is because men and women will abuse that truth. They will say, if God so wants to forgive us, I can live in sin. And every time I come running back, I just ask God for forgiveness and he will forgive me. There's truth to that. People will abuse this truth. But quite frankly, it doesn't matter to God. Yes, he's concerned about how we live our life. He tells us to live a life holy and pleasing in response to what he's done. And yet... The love of God as seen through His Son is so great that Jesus, God Himself, will be willing to forgive you until the very end. Imagine that. 
The heart of God is to forgive His people. So if you have sinned, and some of you this morning may believe that you have sinned so greatly that there is no way God can receive and accept you back, you are mistaken. The heart of God is a heart of forgiveness. To the Roman soldiers who were driving the nails into his hands and feet in excruciating pain, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. To the soldiers who stole his clothes, he is saying, Father, forgive them. To the leaders who were mocking his authority and his power, he was saying, Father, forgive them. To the soldiers standing around and mocking him, to the one who made the sign in jest, he was saying to them, Father, forgive them. Because he's going to die for the sins of these people. Jesus was forgiving until the end. That's the heart of God. There is no sin so deep and so bad that God cannot forgive through His Son. Sometimes we take for granted the fact that He forgives us. We don't meditate upon it. We don't think much about it. And then we question whether God is an angry God and God is a mean God. Why would God allow something like this to happen to my life? God, how can you not love me? I want you to think about this. The heart of God is a heart of forgiveness. And His unconditional love manifests itself in a deep desire to forgive. That's how much God loves us. Look what else Jesus is doing moments before His death. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, whenever I read this passage, I always find it very funny that this criminal who's about to die has nothing better to do than to mock someone else on the cross. This was a man who must have such bitterness in his heart. This is a man who must have believed in the arrogance of his life, only himself. He didn't believe that Jesus was the one who could save him. Or anyone else. And in an hour of his own death, if you can still claim your own righteousness and not be afraid of death, then you won't believe at all. Imagine a criminal on the cross mocking someone else on the cross. But note verse 40 to 41. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? For we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. If you read the account in Matthew and Mark, you will note that at the beginning, both criminals were mocking Jesus. But what brought this man around to go from mocking Jesus to now asking Jesus for help? and rebuking his own fellow criminal. The Bible is not explicit what turned him around. Perhaps it could be that this criminal was in shock that as they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he heard from the mouth of Jesus, Father, forgive them. And he 
perhaps must have thought no person in this entire world could be able to forgive those who were doing such things to him. But something happened. What was said, what happened, changed the heart of this criminal. And when his buddy began to mock Jesus, he condemned him. Look what he says. He rebuked his fellow criminal and he said, We are deserving of what we get. We are deserving. But Jesus, like what Pilate said, has done nothing wrong. You know, this is a man that is not a theologian. This is a man who didn't grow up in church. This is a man who didn't go to Sunday school. But this is a man who understands the basis of salvation. And the first step in salvation is that the person must acknowledge that they are a sinner and that they can't save themselves. The first step is to acknowledge that sin is a bad thing and what they are going to get is that which they deserve. You see, if men and women don't believe they deserve to go to hell, they will not need a Savior or they will not want to look for a Savior. But this man says... Indeed, justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. Their death on their cross, he says, is something we deserve. But not Jesus. He acknowledged he was a sinner. And yet he acknowledged that there was one who had not sinned who could save him. And that's why he says in verse 42, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him in verse 43, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal asked Jesus to show him mercy, show him grace in spite of his wrongs in life. This was a request for salvation through Jesus Christ. He asked to be part of Jesus' kingdom. Perhaps he had heard the message of Jesus somewhere in Jerusalem. As the Bible tells us, all Jerusalem was abuzz when Jesus came the week earlier. You know, it's interesting that this criminal differed from all the others in this narrative. He was the only one that asked to be saved by Jesus All the others, what were they doing? They were arrogantly telling Jesus, save yourself, save yourself. The soldiers were saying to Jesus, save yourself. The religious leaders were saying, save yourself. The other criminal was saying, save yourself. What they were saying is, I have no need of you, Jesus. Go save yourself. I will save myself. And the ironic thing is that Jesus could have saved himself. He could have come down from that cross at any time. But if he saved himself, he would not have been able to save mankind. And the reason Jesus did not save himself from the cross was because he wanted to save mankind, people like you and me. And throughout this entire sequence of narratives, Jesus' last desire, number three, was to save others until the end. The very last act of Jesus Christ before he died in this world is that he was saving someone else. Last person to come to know Christ before he died was a nameless common criminal who most people wouldn't care about. We don't care about his name. We don't care about him. If not for the fact that he was on to one side of Jesus, he was just a common criminal. And most of us who would walk by, we were there then, would simply say he is deserving of this. And yet it's almost fitting 
because Jesus' sole purpose on his earthly mission was to seek and to save the lost, and he sought one who was right next to him as he was about to die. And as Jesus was about to die, he gave one of the most gracious and comforting of words. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Look at the words of Jesus. He uses the word assuredly. He was telling the man, you don't have to worry. I give you my word as the son of God, God himself. He says to the man, I say to you another word of assurance. There is no one else. I say to you, it is based on the person of who I am. I am God. A double assurance to a common criminal that he would be saved. Look at else what Jesus says. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not the future, but from the moment we both die today, you will experience the grace of salvation. Would you show this verse to your Roman Catholic friends? This one word today debunks and throws out their doctrine of purgatory. The very words of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. Here is a man in Roman Catholic theology who is the poster child of someone who would go through purgatory. Someone who wasn't a terrible person, didn't commit the so-called unforgivable sins. He would go to purgatory and work his way to get to heaven. But the Bible is very clear. The Bible says, Jesus' own words, today you will be with me in paradise. And the reason this criminal can be in paradise is because Jesus Christ died for his sins, died on his behalf. He paid the price for this man's sin, and so this man doesn't have to go through a purging. Understand that today. And that's what happens to every one of us who worries whether our soul and our spirit will be in some transient state floating around and we in our Asian Chinese tradition have to honor the dead 10 days, 49 days, 100 days, whatever you want to say, because supposedly that's when the spirits are most active. Men and women who understand what the scriptures have to say about the truth of what happens when we die, know that the moment we close our eyes to this world, there are one of two places we go to. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you go immediately to heaven. That is the words of Jesus. You will be with me in paradise. Paradise is paradise because Jesus Christ is there. With me, you will be in paradise. I remember the 1990s, I read that Northwest Airlines, now bought by Delta Airlines, offered some unusual round-trip ticket offers. For $59, customers could buy a mystery fare ticket that provided a one-day trip to an unknown American city. And buyers would not find out where they were heading until uh, they arrived at the airport for that day's flight. One would wonder what would be the response of people who would want to buy mystery fare tickets. The airline was overwhelmed. There were plenty of takers. 
in the mid-sized city of Indianapolis, more than 1,500 people crowded the airline counter to buy these mystery fare tickets that were sold on a first-come, first-served basis. They had dreams of going to London and to Paris and to New York for $59. Not surprisingly, when buyers learned their destination, not all were very thrilled. One who was hoping to go to New York City found out he was instead going to Minneapolis. It's not a bad city, but it's not New York City. I wonder how many of us, if we're given that offer, would take the chance to go on a mystery destination location. Mystery fare tickets, if applied today, can be a a fun surprise for a weekend vacation, especially if you have lots of time. But most of you are so busy, you want to know where you're going. Normally in life, the last thing you want is a ticket to a mystery destination. And the last thing you never want is a mystery ticket on the day of your death. You don't have to face uncertainty in eternity about whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. Because Jesus offers in the cross to each of us a sure destination, paradise, heaven. And that is certainly much better than the other alternative There are no mysteries when it comes to our eternal, final place. It's either heaven or hell. And Jesus says, you can be certain today, at this moment, to know that if you were to die today, you've got a one-way ticket to heaven. You know, the last person who came to saving faith in Jesus before he died was someone who was literally stuck on the cross. He was literally nailed to the cross. He couldn't move. He couldn't do anything in his own capacity to get saved. The only thing he could do was to have faith that Jesus could in fact save him, and that got him into glory. And again, this is a wonderful passage for people who believe they need to do penance to get saved, or they need to to say a few Hail Marys, or they need to get baptized to get saved. This man is literally nailed to a cross He could not come down and do a single thing. And yet Jesus' own words refutes any sort of theology that speaks to a work's salvation. You and I cannot do anything to contribute to our salvation except only believing in Jesus Christ as the one who can save us. That is the great theology of a salvation by faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. The mirror of a man's heart is his action. To know that Jesus Christ in his last moment on earth, and we'll talk about his death next week, was thinking about us, was forgiving us, was saving us, until his last breath should give you a glimpse into the heart of God. The unconditional depth of God's love. Have you taken the time to meditate upon it? To think about it? To act on it? Have you thought about the love of God lately? It's a great song we sing. Think about his love. Have you done that? For many of us, Jesus' death was a past incident. It has no bearing on our life today. Yeah, 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 we know. He died for us. I'm going to heaven, thanks. I'm moving on with life. 
But if you and I begin to meditate and to think about what Jesus did before he died, it shows you the heart of God today, the unchanging heart of God. A God who is always thinking about us. A God who is always in a great desire to forgive us so that we can be in fellowship with him. God who wants to save all people. Are you thinking about his love? I came across this poem entitled, What Think Ye of Christ? And it goes something like this. Youth, too happy to think. Time yet. Young adult, too busy to think. More money. Prime of life, too anxious to think. Worrying. Declining years, too aged to think. Old hearts are hard. Dying bed, too ill to think. Weak, suffering alone. Death, too late to think. The spirit has flown. Eternity, forever to think. God's mercy passed. Into hell I am righteously cast. Forever to weep my doom. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you don't have time to think about the love of God and how is it expressed through Jesus Christ, if you don't have time, then you will have all eternity to think about it and perhaps regret that you didn't have time to think about it. For those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, for the one who lovingly died for you and me, He was thinking about you until the very end. He was thinking about your life and my life while he was on the cross. And if he was thinking about us until he died, and for all eternity, I wonder, do we even think about him once a day? Do we even spend five minutes a week thinking about the love of God and what he did for us in our life and how that should radically change the way we live? Have we done it this week? Last week? Have we even thought about his love this month? I hope the challenge for those of us who know Christ is that we will take time every day, at least once a week, but hopefully every day, to be thinking about Jesus, to think about the heart of God and what he does, especially in light of knowing that God, from eternity past to eternity future, is always thinking about our welfare. He's so concerned about us. If he is thinking about us, should we not be thinking about him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into the heart of God through the actions of your son, Jesus Christ, God himself. When he could have been thinking about himself, his future glory, what he was going to do. We see from his actions, he was forgiving, he was saving, he was thinking about people like us. We just have to pause and we just have to stop and be overwhelmed by this truth. May it be every day we are overwhelmed with the unconditional, 
grace-filled love of God that stops us in our track every day, that calls us to attention to live a life that will be holy and pleasing for God who thought about us at the moment of His greatest suffering for us every day to think about Him, the one who died for us, and by doing so, change the way we live. You know, Lord, how you can speak into the hearts of these men and women and what they are to do. May they go out and do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.